Welcome to Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast series with Northwestern leadership around all things sustainability. I'm Greg Kozak, Director of Sustainability at Northwestern University. For those of you unfamiliar, Sustain and You is Northwestern's university-wide program that aims to engage students, faculty, and staff in reducing Northwestern's impact on the environment by incorporating sustainability into our campus operations and culture. To learn more, visit our website at northwestern.edu slash sustainability. And now enjoy Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast. With emerging evidence that many disadvantaged communities in the United States are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, today's podcast will focus on the indirect but connected theme of the unequal impact of environmental degradation and climate change on low-income, minority, and marginalized communities. Today's podcast is installment three of three on the topic of environmental justice and the intersection of sustainability, equity, and environmental health. Today, we are joined by Professor Patty Lowe. Professor Lowe is co-director of Native American and Indigenous Research at Northwestern University and professor in the Medill School of Journalism. A citizen of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior, Ojibwe, Dr. Lowe, is a former broadcast journalist in public and commercial television and has authored four books. Much of her research takes place on Indian reservations in northern Wisconsin, where she directs tribal youth media workshops, integrating digital media, science, and then efforts to grow the next generation of storytellers and land stewards. Patty, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Greg. I'm really happy to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure having you. So, Let's get right into it. Can you talk a little bit about your background and a bit more about your work at Northwestern University? Sure, thank you. Um, well, I'm a citizen of Mashkazibi, which is our word for Bad River Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe. We're um, a Northern Wisconsin people. Uh, we live on the South shore of Lake Superior. I grew up, however, in Milwaukee, um, was educated at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, then started my career in broadcast journalism, um, both in commercial and then I redeemed myself in public television. Um, I came back to Madison a little bit later in life and worked full time doing the news for an ABC affiliate in Madison and going to school part time collecting my master's and PhD in um, communication and really focusing on Native American history and communication. Um, after finishing school, I taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for almost 20 years and then um, came here to Northwestern in 2017. I, I teach Native American-themed courses um, in Medill, and um, I uh, am part of the leadership team in the Center for Native American and Indigenous Research. Well, we're, we're lucky to have pulled you away from UW-Madison and have you <laughs> on campus here. So Just so don't ask me who I root for uh, when, oh, uh, when the Dodgers play, <laughs> play oh. the Wildcats. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so today we're going to be talking to you about your unique path and your perspectives on environmental justice, particularly in Native American communities. So let's dive right in. Patty, in a sentence, what does environmental justice mean to you and what got you interested in the topic of environmental justice and the interplay of sustainability and equity? That's such a profound question. Um, <laughs> for me, environmental justice really aligns with my tribe's seventh generation philosophy. And that's a way of thinking we're, we're taught as Ojibwe people 
to make decisions based on what we think the best interest of generation seven into the future will be. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when you think about it, so making decisions when you're thinking about, you know, 200 years in the future really promotes a sort of generous, unselfish and visionary way of thinking, which I think is in pretty short supply these days. I I love that theme of thinking about seven generations into the future. I wish the United States would take a a stronger following of that type of of thought process. Yeah. When you, you know, when you think about the way our mainstream systems operate, you know, we're on two, four and six year political cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, We're on quarterly cycles for business. And some of the really wicked problems, you know, climate change and environmental degradation, you really have to be thinking, you know, generations into the future. And it really does um, involve some self-sacrifice at times. So obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I've heard journalists and I've read articles that say the repercussions of environmental injustice have become even more obvious with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on if and how the current pandemic has shown a light on this issue of environmental injustice and environmental um, justice in Native American communities or otherwise. Oh, it, it, really, it, it really has. The inequities are really dramatic. Um, in Indian country, I really have to talk about two separate groups of Native people because you have reservation-based Native people but you also have urban populations, and now 70% of Native people live in urban areas, and that's an area, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second, but um, you probably, your listeners have probably been watching news groups about how COVID is affecting certain communities in the Southwest. You know, there's tremendous housing shortages and overcrowded housing in you know, Navajo communities, for example, um, under-resourced hospitals, understaffed underfunded, lack of running water. How can you wash your hands when you don't have running water? How can you learn about how, you know, strategies to protect yourself when you lack access to the internet? And, you know, the result of that is in Navajo, for example, they have 3,000 cases per 100,000 population. And that's far more than New York City, which is the epicenter. There are some Pueblos, they have rates that are six to 10 times higher than the states in which they reside. So the disproportionate impacts are really evident. And then to make matters worse, when you, you, know, you have communities like uh, some of the Lakota communities in South Dakota that have been trying to protect themselves, they've got um, really limited healthcare facilities on some of these reservations. And there's one tribe that set up a roadblock trying to keep people off their reservation because they don't have the means to deal with COVID should, you know, there be a major outbreak in their community. And, you know, the present administration is threatening to eliminate all their federal funding if they don't lift the roadblock. You know, so, you know, those kinds of things are really troubling. And then in urban areas, You know, this is what is so frustrating. Good luck trying to find information. If you look at the city of Chicago, you'll find information for Latinx, Black, white, Asian communities. But where are the Native Americans? You know, Mm -hmm. there's this this category. We're we're absent from any of the data collection statistics. And there's a category other, 
maybe we're in there. And if so, we have the second highest death rate in the city. But, mm. you know, nobody's nobody's keeping track. Illinois keeps statistics. And, you know, those show that of the American Indians who are tested, 17% are testing positive. But we don't know where they live, you know, what their cases are. We're just invisible. And that is what is, you know, really troubling. We already had health disparities before COVID. You know, we've got diabetes rates that are four times higher than other groups. We have higher heart disease. You know, and there's such a, a, a sinister irony in all of this, you know, because if you go back 500 years because of colonization, we lost an estimated 90% of our population to mm-hmm. influenza, smallpox, measles. You know, so, you know, we've seen this before. It is quite troubling that there's this dearth of information out there about an entire indigenous nation. Yeah, we're um, 574 indigenous nations in the United States. You know, and that that makes it difficult too because, um, you know, we're talking about communities that are sovereign but have different languages, different social structures, different experiences with the United States, with the states in which they reside, with other native communities it's really it's really frustrating and mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm a historian so thinking about the loss of our population and the people that survived all these waves of of epidemics over you know 500 years um, the people that survived still have traditional ecological knowledge that might offer this generation some wisdom but a lot of that is being lost through language lost, you know, a lot of our knowledge comes to us through the oral tradition. And, you know, the people that are dying from COVID are the most vulnerable, often the elderly. These are the people that are our knowledge keepers. That last comment you made sort of ties to my introduction of this interconnectedness between COVID-19 and climate change. And I would I was hoping we could maybe shift gears and talk about climate. How are environmental injustice and social inequity already evident in the growing toll of climate change in Native American communities? We're we're on the front lines. We're seeing it. Um, our population is not as mobile as mainstream populations. I mean, this is our land. It's not like if um, if our area gets flooded. You know, we're not going to move someplace else. This is our sovereign land. We're tied to this. And we have this sort of biocultural relationship um, where our, our language, our songs, our ceremonies, our histories, our education, everything is connected to the natural world. So, you know, in the Upper Great Lakes region, for example, um, my community is um, a wild ricing community. We have 75 acres of manoman, what we call the good seed or wild rice. And wild rice is an indicator species. If you have wild rice growing in a lake or a river, that's a clean ecosystem. Um, And that wild rice is feeding fish and um, small mammals. It's feeding humans and filtering the water. It's beautiful, beautiful. You know, we we call it a relative. That's just a small indication of how significant this plant is to us. Um, We're seeing more invasive species in our wild rice. Um, We're having these tremendous, severe storm events, flooding that is destroying the rice at its, you know, most crucial time in its growing cycle. Um, We're seeing our birch bark 
um, affected. Smaller trees and more brittle paper bark. Um, we're seeing species that when you're a people that have lived in the same place for you know, a thousand years or thousands of years, you understand the rhythms and you see how things are all connected. You know that when the frogs start to chirp, that's when the walleye spawn. You know, when there's a there's a prairie fire the next year, that's when the blueberries multiply in, in a really abundant way. So we see all these things and we're we're seeing these really troubling occurrences um, because there are fewer plants of a certain nature. And, you know, one of the things that is really hopeful in all of this is there are native communities that are really focused on food sovereignty and trying to grow um, corn, for example, the Oneida Nation in northern Wisconsin. Yeah, there's a, um, a white corn cooperative there that is selecting seeds, picking plants that, um, that are um, susceptible to flooding. You know, they're, they're resistant to flooding and they're making it through these severe weather events that I described earlier. So they're taught to prepare seven generations of the, the items that they need to survive. What, what have you learned in your time looking at this issue of environmental justice that people are oftentimes surprised to hear. Yeah, how resilient Native people are, you know, through all, all these you know, health challenges 500 years ago and health challenges today, people are, are being creative. They're looking for solutions. A lot of Native community are, communities are talking to each other, forming coalitions around things like food sovereignty, for example. Mm. You know, there's a movement um, among some of the Native nations in this country to reestablish old Indian trade routes in a new contemporary way and looking at different ways, different economic systems, you know, bartering. <laughs> it's, it's pretty interesting. And um, these are all coping systems that are really relying on the sort of bio, again, biocultural ways of living that tribes have developed over, you know, millennia. So I mentioned in your intro that you lead the Tribal Youth Media Initiative. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about <laughs> that initiative? I don't think a lot of people are familiar with it. Yeah, um, since about 2005, um, a, a group of graduate students and I uh, began teaching digital storytelling skills to Native kids. We started on the Lakota Ray Reservation, and um, some of my students have branched out and now work on the Oneida Reservation and Ho Chunk Reservation. I've been focusing at uh, my my work at Bad River for the last 10 years or so. And we, um, we've managed to purchase some professional video equipment. We teach kids um, the technical aspects of photography, uh, video, editing, music, digital music composition. And we ask them to investigate an environmental issue incorporating traditional ecological knowledge and scientific ecological knowledge. So they're interviewing um, scientists from Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. They're interviewing their grandmas and their grandpas and people, that, you know, from Northland College and some of the other higher education institutions around there. And they're looking at things like climate change and 
food sovereignty, uh, food security, fishing and ricing, and some of the traditional activities that their tribal community has been involved in. And, you know, it's important to me because uh, Native Americans have the lowest participation in the sciences. And it, it always struck me as being really um, just uh, un- unusual. I mean, we're, we're, we live really close to the land, so mm-hmm. why, aren't, why aren't we in the sciences? Well, I mean, we are doing our own kind of science, but when, when a mining company shows up and wants to, you know, put a, a 22-mile-long open pit taconite mine at the headwaters of our Rice River, we don't have the scientific capacity. We don't have those scientists with fancy letters at the end of their names. Um, and we need that. You know, we've got, we've got a number of environmental threats from pipelines, from mining, from, you know, forestry, from, you know, all kinds of environmental pressures. And we really need people who, and this is, this is the difference, people who are going to ask cultural questions and apply the scientific method to them. We're, we're not talking about developing scientists who are just going to you know, try to incorporate culture here and there. I mean, it's a, it's a really different orientation when you ask a cultural question about a relationship that people have with a, you know, with a plant or an animal or an ecosystem, and then you apply science to that. It's a different way of getting knowledge. So mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do with that, that program. That's great. So going a little off script here, but, you know, there's a lot of discussion and talk about the link between racism and environment, you know, and kind of allows for pollution and climate change because areas of the world and certain people, cultures, races, countries are considered disposable. Is there, do you see that, that tie with these, the indigenous nations that you mentioned? Absolutely, Greg. You know, I mean, we, you know, we think of them as sacrifice zones. Uh, you know, case in point, look at the Dakota Access Pipeline project. That pipeline was originally going, it was going to be located upstream from Bismarck. And, and then, the, you know, the mm-hmm. people in Bismarck, which is 98% white, said, mm-hmm. we don't want, you know, that contaminating our drinking water. No, we don't want that here. So the pipeline got rerouted, you know, to go upstream from Cannonball, North Dakota, where the, you know, Standing Rock Sioux Reservation is. And um, and when the Native people said, hey, you know, we don't want our water, you know, contaminated, we're, we're concerned about that threat, that concern went nowhere. It was like, well, you know, Cannonball is 98% Native. So if you look at where these really large-scale industrial projects are the big Mm -hmm. look at the the Menominee reservation for example the Menominee tribe there's a mining company that wants to put a large gold mine in an area that the Menominee nation considers its point of origin unfortunately the Menominee are located in Wisconsin and the mine is in upper uh, Michigan which used to be part of you know Menominee's and it still is Menominee's ancestral lands but you know it's a hundred hundred feet from a river. And the Menominee are saying that's a that's a terrible place to put a gold mine. If you know anything about mining and sulfide mining, you know, gold silver comes out of sulfide deposits. You expose sulfur to air or water, what do you get? Sulfuric acid and acid mine drainage. So, you know, this is you you look at this and you can't help 
but see, you know, race as being a determining factor in this. Yeah, it's it's eye-opening, right? That pipeline is a just a perfect example of racism and sort of this white settler mindset that's okay to value some lives more than others. Like the people mm-hmm. in the Dakota didn't want it there, the white people, and said, it's okay to put it over here. And it's okay for some people to have clean air or clean water while others are struggling to, to breathe and I also connect this to not just what's happening in rural areas, you know, and reservations, but, you know, look at what's happening in cities. Cityscapes are environments, too. And I think we're seeing the kind of social inequities and concerns about police and institutional kinds of racism and disadvantages. And a lot of the, I think a lot of the consciousness is really, there's a solidarity that's happening and people are starting to connect Black Lives Matter with water is life movements and immigration movements. And just as racism pervades, I think environmental justice pervades as well. And I think we're starting to see solidarity movements come together around some of these really important, you know, seminal issues. Absolutely. So this is a selfish question, because I get it oftentimes, and I struggle to, to answer it. But what what actions can Northwestern students, faculty and staff, and even residents of Evanston and Chicago take to acknowledge and or support environmental justice, but more importantly, dismantle this this issue of, of environmental injustice? Yeah, boy, problem seems so big and we're just, mm. you know, single individuals, right? But as trite as it may sound, I think it's really important to think globally, but act locally. You know, I think if we focus on improving our immediate environments, focus on improving our neighborhoods, ally with people that are trying to do good things, and then create connections between your little part of the world and and people, you know, that, that are adjacent to you. And I think that's the way movements grow. And Mm -hmm. we can improve and really start thinking about our actions in terms of seventh generation. So I mentioned, you know, you've authored four books, you've got the tribal youth media workshops happening. What else is next for you? Hmm. Well, um, I'm, uh, I have, <laughs> I've got a couple of grant proposals in and um, mm-hmm. a couple of them are really exciting. We're trying to connect the resources of Northwestern and UW-Madison and Michigan Tech and the University of Michigan, Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, a couple of tribal colleges around convergence of of science that connects traditional ecological knowledge with scientific ecological knowledge. So that's pretty exciting. I have a, an indigenous tour of Northwestern that my students and I put together, and we have a, a major grant proposal into the National Endowment for the Humanities to create what will be, if we get funded, the first um, Native American cultural tour that has augmented reality in it. So that's kind of that's kind of fun. Um, I'm I'm working with the American Indian Center here in Chicago that got a grant to create an urban Indian news bureau. So I'll be I'll be busy the next couple of years. I I hope. <laughs> Sounds like it, Patty. We're at the end of our podcast recording. Unfortunately, any final thoughts you'd like to leave with us today? Hmm. Well, I think empathy. 
Empathy is a really important virtue that that uh, I'm trying to develop more of. And I think when we think about any kind of justice, I think empathy is is an important quality to try to embrace. On that note, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you again, Patty, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. This has been Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast series with Northwestern leadership on all things sustainability. This was installment three of three on the topic of environmental justice and the intersection of sustainability, equity, and environmental health. Previous Sustain and You conversations on this topic included Medill Associate Professor Abigail Forstner and Pritzker School of Law Clinical Associate Professor Nancy Lowe. So please check those out. Thanks. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.